This podcast is sponsored by listeners like yourself. Listeners like Karen, who give a buck a month, or listeners like Angela and Mike, who give five, or, or Katie, who gives ten. It adds up, truly to the point where this show actually would not exist, would not be something you're listening to right now without it. Even if it's critically acclaimed, and, and it is, it has been in places like The Telegraph or The Independent. It's truly a, a solo production. It's just run by myself. It's just me and the folks who set aside a, a buck or two a month to give back and make this happen at patreon.com slash the laps. That and that alone is what makes this possible. So if you like the show, consider being a part of what I do. And there's a wealth of bonus content, all sorts of stuff. That address again, patreon.com slash the laps. Thanks and enjoy the show. With that said, hello, everybody. Welcome to the Lap Storytelling Podcast, where we tell true stories, gussied up. You know, I think I've said this before, but I hate picking favorites. I, I, I need to emphasize this. I hate picking favorites. Because it doesn't matter what it is. It is. If it's food or movies or public bathrooms, it doesn't matter. If I have to pick a favorite, I get this tight feeling in my chest, like I, I'm not giving everything it's due, and that it's some things are good for these reasons, some things are better for... I, I guess what I'm saying is I have a problem. In this case, we're dealing with people's stories here, often very personal stories. So let me say that I am so proud of your two stories that if I could fit every story I wanted in here, you wouldn't be able to download it. That's, that's the honest to God truth. I contractually cannot upload a file beyond, it was a struggle to get this file size to something you could download. And, and there are people in remote areas who can't download files over a certain size. Point is, suffice to say, if you haven't gone back through the old episodes of all you do, if you're the sort of person, I don't think a lot of these exist, but if you happen to be the kind of person who just listens to a best of and then coasts on through the show as it continues, that's fine. But uh, you'd be doing a disservice, I think, to yourself because there's some really compelling stuff back there in the archive. Do yourself a favor. Give them a look. So without further ado, I've compiled four of the very best stories from year two, along with a couple of updates on what's been happening since those stories, since a couple of you have been asking. First up, we're going to revisit one of the most incredible stories I've ever had the privilege to listen to from, I think, just about anybody. My conversation with Will Lautzenheiser was something like four hours long. If you can imagine, trying to cut down a four-hour interview, this is the longest of the four episodes, but it flies by. Here's Will Outsenheiser from episode 30, Here's My Arms. The doctor said, your lungs need a break. We have to put you on a ventilator. All this for a leg cramp? This was just something that happened to me because I pulled a muscle when I was moving heavy boxes. The way he said it, well, your lungs need a break, we need to put you on a ventilator, it kind of made me think, well, okay, in some reasonable universe, they'll put me on a ventilator, they'll figure out what's up, and I'll be out of here by the end of the weekend. Will's just moved out of Boston, now the new film professor at Montana State University. This cramp was getting worse and worse. So I taught on Wednesday, and I taught on Thursday, and on Friday morning, my colleague and friend took me to the hospital, and I, I said to Bob as he dropped me off, you know, well, I'll see you at the noon meeting. 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 Mr. Do you know where you are? Yes, I'm in a hospital. That's right. That's right. Good, 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 good. 
Now do you know the I'm in Montana, and they looked at me very sadly. No, you're in Utah. This is very mean of these nurses, because <laughs> I've never been to Utah in my life. Why would they be telling me that I was in Utah? Very quickly, I understood that the correct answer to the question of what state are you in was Utah, even though I didn't believe it. There were just trees and trees of IVs. I remember quite vividly trying to push pillows off of me. These pillows weren't going anywhere, even though I tried to push them and push them and push them. Felt like my arms were moving through quicksand. I was a victim of septic shock, so I had kidney failure, liver failure, spleen failure, heart failure. The infection causes blood clots, and those blood clots were blocking the circulation in my arms and legs. You bombard an infection like this, an invasive infection, with antibiotics, and they try to keep patient's blood pressure up by injecting a lot of fluid. And that fluid has to go somewhere. Eventually it starts to pool in, in spaces where it ought not. Huge blisters six or seven inches like away from your body. They weren't pillows at all, but in fact I had gained about 80 pounds of fluid as the doctors were trying to keep me alive. It was probably a day or two after I realized how sick I was that I had a conversation with a surgeon who came in. He uh, unwrapped my hand. There's an interesting way in which your brain doesn't actually allow you to know how sick you are. It barely looked like my hand, shriveled and kind of peeling. It looked like a, a blackened, ashy, gray mummy's hand. He said, well, we think that we're really going to have to amputate. I said, yeah, it's a good thing I learned to play the violin when I did. I had this bizarre sensation of flipping back and forth between time periods. Hallucination doesn't have that, oh, this is probably a dream quality. It's absolutely happening. I thought that I was turning my nurses into cyborgs. Through my mind, I was replacing their legs with wheels. They would sort of move almost like a Segway, gliding somehow, or that they didn't have feet anymore. What was amazing about this was that I no longer was in 2011. I was in 2028 or, or something like that. In 2011, I didn't have my arms. 
but in the future, I did have my arms. This was presenting something of a choice. Was I going to live in a time that I had arms, which was a fantasy, or was I going to choose to live in a time that I didn't, which was reality? When your reality is so surreal that you find yourself waking up without arms, that was a nightmare. I had been so sick that the doctors removed the sick and dead tissue from my body. I had no idea what had made me so sick. Necrotizing fasciitis, often, though perhaps erroneously, referred to as flesh-eating bacteria. Truth is, as far as the bacteria goes, you could be carrying it with you asymptomatically right now. Up to 30% of us are, every day. Heck, you've probably been treated for it several times over. Strep throat can be a real pain. In Will's case, an emissary from Group A strep colonizes an area it shouldn't. Skin tissue, fat, muscles. It produces in its wake a mire of toxins so virulent they begin to necrotize the extremities, resulting in some of the most rapid, catastrophic cell death known to medicine. So much for a muscle pull, right? Well, it really could have been just from a muscle pull, something that had somehow gotten into my body, get a little bit of a, a foothold, so to speak. Whatever the cause of the case may be, for Will, that infection spread to all four of his limbs. He is now a quadrilateral amputee. I never really had a thought of, why did this happen to me? I kind of joked about this. It's kind of like, oh my gosh, what did I do in a past life? But I, I really, I honestly don't believe that people deserve anything that they get. You know, this was a biological thing, the mechanisms of bacteria that I couldn't even be angry at, really. It was just sort of, okay, wow, that was awful. They were, they were doing their thing, but that necrotizing fasciitis, man, that's a real bugger. I thought, I, I'm really going to be the best patient I possibly can. I really made an effort to get to know people's stories, and I'm going to learn people's names. Like, I learned my students' names, you know. Get to know them, because they're human beings who are there to learn from you. Now, the fact that my partner, Angel, had come out to be with me, I thought was a good sign, but I also understood that the terms of our relationship had changed so radically that I certainly couldn't have blamed him if he had decided that this was too much for him to take on. It wasn't as if we'd been together for 10 years and then this happened. It, it was still a fairly young relationship. His character was so strong and, and open to whatever life had including this. That meant obviously so much to me. For the present, he's still being fed with a tube in his nasal cavity. Can't even speak yet. Essentially, all I could communicate with, since I didn't have my voice and could barely move, was my eye. And I was trying to blink out letters to, to acknowledge people. Yes, 
no. Eventually, I was beginning to get through, and we were beginning to go through an alphabet, and, you know, A, B, C, D, blinking at the letter that I wanted. We would do this over and over to try to get out what I was trying to say. Especially when I was in extreme pain, I would try to think of music that I liked. And what I really wanted to hear was the four last songs by Strauss, Richard Strauss. We somehow got Strauss, that much I communicated. But when people looked for Strauss, what they found was Johann Strauss. They were like, Strauss, Will, you wanted to hear this, and suddenly it's the Blue Danube. It was groaningly inappropriate. One Strauss versus the other. And of course, there I was in the bed, totally unable to communicate and just being like, no. Christmas, one of my wonderful nurses brought in a blender and a pineapple and some cream of coconut, and we had virgin pina coladas. <laughs> that staff became my family, and not only do I owe my health, but in a lot of ways my sanity to everyone at the University of Utah Burn Center. January I came back to Boston, but I still wasn't ready to go home. I had a lot of rehab to go through. Six months of rehab. The map of your body in your brain no longer correlates with the territory that your body actually is. Your nerves in your residual limbs are sending out signals. They're starved for contact after having received and sent signals all this time, and suddenly they're like... There's just a lot of confusion. When I would turn my elbow inward, if it were next to my body, it would feel as if my arm were passing through my torso. I would feel my arm is somehow in me. When it got to my back, in a way as if I had my arm, I could have scratched my back that way, it would begin to feel natural again. I had a lot of phantom limb sensation basically as soon as my limbs were gone. Sometimes I had unbearable itches. You can't do anything about it. Some people with disabilities, whether they be amputations or not, or just are, are so paralyzed by self-consciousness. I don't mean to disparage that reaction. I think it's a totally legitimate reaction. I feel that it's good to be visible. It seems like it's particularly little children who, you know, haven't yet been told, you can't say that or you can't think that, you know. So I often hear when I'm going down the street, Mom, what happened to his legs? <laughs> Wait a minute, I don't have arms either. <laughs> what, the, what the heck? Why are you ignoring them? I needed a consult with a plastic surgeon. His name was Yaromir Slama. Dr. Slama was very sympathetic, even in the brief time that he consulted. But the next day he came back to my room. He said, you know, I met with a friend last night. I mentioned your case, and he would like to talk with you. 
And he said, have you heard of Bodon Pomahak? If you haven't been following your medical advances, you might not be familiar with Dr. Pomahak. But Will? Uh, yes, I've heard of Bodon Pomahak. Dr. Pomahak is a world-renowned surgeon, head of the team at Boston's Brigham and Women's Hospital, the folks responsible for the world's first human face transplant. Come March 10th, 2012, Will has a meeting. Not only Dr. Pomahak, but also the other doctors involved with the transplant program. The conversation was really interesting. While we can't say for certain how much function we can restore, says Pomahak, given enough time to heal and enough time to find the right donor, we could attempt an arm transplant. In your case, a double arm transplant. It's really too early right now for someone in your situation, but let's see where you are in a year, and maybe we can consider it. Let's be clear here. These are not prosthetics we're talking about. These would come from a human donor, a set of arms potentially capable of touching, feeling, making a fist, or flipping the bird. Maybe. To make an understatement... It's not like, you know, plugging in a lamp. They join bone to bone and muscle to muscle and nerve to nerve and tendon to tendon and skin to skin and all that stuff. And then you have to wait. Aside from finding a matching donor, ensuring that Will's body has healed, countless blood tests, MRIs, x-rays, CAT scans, as well as profiling his emotional and psychological preparedness for the outcome, whatever it may be, New arms would also mean sudden additional body weight. Until then, the procedure will only move forward if Will is physically fit, strong enough to utilize the arms that he gets. So the further he heals, the farther he throws himself into physiotherapy. How do I get up from lying down? Can I get up on my elbow and really sit up? It took me months to do that. You know, I was, I was able to use prostheses very well, especially on my right. I tied a shoelace in rehab using my prostheses. I could pick up coins and move them around. I mean, all the things that, that I could do. And once I got home, I figured out more. Will's actually gained some pretty significant function with his prosthetics. If he gets the surgery, that's if. And something goes wrong. Should his body reject the arms, should they simply fail to regain sensation, the arms will have to come off. Again. I strongly believe that this is sort of how science works, that there are people who are willing to go through some things, and that's how we make progress. It seems strange maybe to, to be amputated twice. <laughs> if I say no to it, then I'm going to live the rest of my life thinking, what if I had done that? If I say yes to it, I'm going to be able to give it a good shot. And at least, you know, if it fails, then I'm going to be able to say, well, I tried. I really tried. But that's all you can say is I made a really good effort to make this work. I was just studying arms and hands constantly. Almost everyone I would see, I would look at. You know, oh, look at those arms. I wonder if the arms I get might be like that, or wonder if the arms I get might be like that. There were all kinds of dreams that I had where I was 
I was actually doing things. So I was walking somewhere. I was gesturing somehow to be whole again like that was extremely pleasing. Those moments were wonderful and terrible. To wake up, not totally remembering, to realize, well, that's not the way things are, that you've endured this loss and then you have to go through it again. Well, I don't recognize that number. It could be anyone, but it could be one of the doctors calling on their cell phone. Hello? Hi, this is Matt Cardi. Um, this is Will. There's no reason Dr. Cardi would be calling me from his cell phone unless it was the call. I have two questions for you. Do you want to go through with this? Then my second question is, where are you? And can you come down to the hospital soon? I put the phone down and I was shaking. Just shaking. I woke up the next morning feeling like I was choking. I heard one of my nurses say, that has got to come out. This breathing tube. And she pulled it. The nurses looked at each other and they were like, yep, that was the right decision. It takes a moment. Just the one. There were arms. They resemble mine enough. They were a little more tan than mine. They're a little um, slightly hairier, not much. They were a little plumper than mine, but I couldn't tell whether that was from swelling from the surgery or whether they actually were. Altogether, beautiful. When they were first on me, the arms were actually dead weight, or you would you would call them that. They're not innervated at all. Like, my nerves weren't working. All of the lifting power that I had was really coming from me, from my body. So it's essentially, it was like having, let's say, 10 pound or whatever weights strapped onto the end of my arms, which I actually did for a while before I got the surgery, just to try to get a sensation of what it might be like. Once the arms were actually on me, that weight is distal. That is, it's farther from my body. So this distal weight, actually for weeks, I was still not really able to even roll over myself. I turned on my shower in the morning and I stuck my arm under the water. I thought, wait a minute, and I took my arm out and I shut the water off. I realized that I was feeling cold. There are people who can, who have had transplants who can now distinguish between touching like a hardcover book, you know, sort of glossy, smooth feeling and the rough paper of a page. Think about the, the fine nerve detection that can sense that, and, and that's, that's very impressive to me. The motor control will come slowly, and, and like the sensation, hopefully over a long period of time will get better and better and better. But it remains to be seen, it's still a gamble, even now. 
the right has sensation a little further along down than the left because the left's amputation was above my elbow, so the nerves have a lot farther to travel. So sensory nerves are coming back first, motor nerves are slowly, slowly coming back, making connections that they need to make to control the muscles. My hand movements, especially on the left, it's very, very weak. It's minimal. Uh, I'm moving my fingers now a few millimeters, but they're moving. On the right hand, I'm beginning to be able to kind of clench my fingers a little bit and to extend them pretty well, and the same with the wrist. I wouldn't say they're quite functional yet because I don't have the strength, but I expect that that strength will come the more I do it. Those are real gains. And then there's this other small issue, which is the possibility of leg transplants. Brigham is, is beginning a leg transplant protocol. I myself will need to become as fully capable with my arms as possible, to be able to bear my weight through my arms, to be able to move myself around. And I, I said to my doctors, I don't know how much of my 40s I want to spend in the hospital, but it, it, it's not maybe an impossibility. I always wonder now whether the, the donor knew how beautiful his arms were. The donor is anonymous to me. And, you know, it's weird to think about because you couldn't possibly be more intimate. The other day I felt wind on my arm. And after not having felt that for over three years, I feel a little um, greedy almost, so it makes me sad in some way. I mourn my donor. I'm so lucky to have the arms, it, it feels like it's inappropriate almost because someone lost his life and, and can't enjoy the arms that, that he had. In Ulysses, there's a line that Joyce has about his my shoes. His my is one word. And basically Daedalus is thinking about borrowed shoes that he's wearing. I mean, it's a, it's a little more complicated, but his my is what I really want to think about. And, and for a while, I kind of thought of the arms as his my arms. But I, I really, I do realize they, they really are mine. Um, despite having another provenance, in a sense. They are so precious to me. They are me. That story again was shared by Will Lautzenheiser. On a personal note, I have since become an organ donor after listening to Will's story, uh, I don't know why I didn't do it before, to be honest. It's it's one of those things, you know, if I can give someone a new lease on life, somebody half as fine a person as Will, well, you know, I, I, guess I, I guess I'll never know. But they will, and that's what's important. Will is still progressing at last check-in, and the feature-length version of his documentary Stumped is still in production. He's actually been all over the news, and funny enough, uh, so has his father, uh, Robert Lautzenheiser, who turned 100 years old in October. 
He's a volunteer for the National Weather Service, has been for 55 years, and still dutifully reports the weather every single day. Next up is Greg Armstrong, who people often ask me, where do you find your stories for the show? And the truth is, I found Greg's story from a tweet, less than 140 characters, and uh, hours later, sort of unable to, to quite get to sleep, he wrote me an email. Uh, it's one of the strongest stories the show's had. Here is Greg Armstrong in episode 31's The Greg Reaper. Days in uh, London where it's sunny are far and few between, so they really stick out when it's clear blue sky. Really nice day. It wasn't very busy, but I was at the front of the shop talking to a customer. As usual, you get asked where the Apple store is a hundred times a day. Something caught my eye over their shoulder, and I just saw this blur. Was that a... Then I heard the sound. This big echoing thud. Like someone dropped a bag full of... Maybe like 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 a um, like a bag of sand or something. It just had this <laughs> waiting for the screams, and it was just nothing, complete silence. I could see people looking over the edge, but no one seemed really that panicked. It was because no one reacted that I started questioning myself. So I was like, "All right, I'm gonna have a look over the edge." But what I expected to see. Gauged everyone's reactions, I thought I was going to see someone's like duffel bag lying on the floor. I walked over to the edge, looked. I kind of froze for a second. Maybe an older person I thought I'd see. Not a young boy. This young boy in a school uniform lying at the bottom. Then the fire alarm went off. So I kind of turned and went in the shop. I was like, right, sorry everyone, we need to vacate the store. Staff, get your bags, because we're not going to be coming back in here for a few hours. Take what you need with you. By this point, I'd already put the grill down and we'll exit in the back of the store. I'm not a smoker, unless I'm really drunk. But at this point, someone had cigarettes. I remember just being like, can I have a cigarette? People asking me what happened, but I don't like to... When something that happens in the centre, you don't know who you're talking to when you go outside, so you'll be careful what you say to people, so I just played dumb with anyone asking me questions about what was happening. I didn't see anything. No, I didn't see anything. Oh, I heard someone fell. Then stories start coming out. Oh, I heard he was pushed. I heard this. So you just keep quiet in case it's like someone doing a local paper or something, so you just keep your mouth shut. You know, it's a crime scene in there now. No one's going in there for hours. And you can't go anywhere because all your stuff and you've got to cash up, whatever. You see, you're just waiting. I uh, texted my friend Joe and told him what happened. He's one of those guys that's just like, okay, I'm meeting you for a beer tonight. The Fighting Cocks, it's a great pub. I've been drinking at that pub for like 10 years. It's got a really, really good regulars community down there. It's like Cheers. I can go down there on my own and I'm going to know someone down there.
I was in bed and I just kept hearing the the sound. Shut my eyes, I'd see him on the floor. I kind of expected that, I guess. I knew there'd be some sort of repercussion from it from that day. I remember I'd work the next day. The worst thing was, is that there's a lot of people, other shoppers outside, you just saw them all stood on the edge, all pointing, like, at where... Where, oh, it happened over there, that's where it happened. No, he jumped from there, like, you saw people debating it. And people coming in asking, did you see it, did you see it? Like, really? I think they forget that people in this shop saw it. They probably don't want to be talking about it. I was just like, no, I didn't see it. Oh, I missed out. I got a little bit... I wouldn't say obsessed with it. I just wanted to know more about him. People would start tweeting. People from his school. At first it was always, oh, he was bullied, he was this. But I don't know how much of that was true. He was 15. Why did he jump? Why did he do it? I do know that when he was in the centre... Before jumping, he kept coming in and out of the toilets and looking over the edge and then going back in the toilets. That thought, the thought of just coming and looking over the edge, whether you're debating to do it or not. Like a few years ago when someone else jumped from there, they had a coffee before. They sat down and had a coffee. It's just like, I suppose you don't know it goes through someone's mind before they do something like that. You know? If I was going to do it, would I sit down and have a coffee first? What would what be the point? I don't know, unless you want to sit down and reflect and you know, de de debate what you're about to do. I mean, he's lucky he didn't land on anyone. Because it goes straight past my floor into the basement floor. And down there, you've got McDonald's. You've got kids' shops. It's a dark fort. About a week later, someone came in my shop. And he tried some stuff on. And he went into the fitting room. At a distance, security guard keeps watch. Psst, he says to Greg. That's, that's his, his brother. brother. Who? Who jumped? jumped. That's, that's his brother. brother. Keeping an eye on him to make sure he didn't try the same thing. He was just shopping. But then he came out the fitting room, and I've learnt this information from when he went in, and he's come out. He approaches Greg at the checkout. How are you? T-shirt in his hands. Trying to act as normal as I can, but then I'm knowing now who he is. And in my head, it's like, man, do I say anything? I saw your brother die. I hope the t-shirt fits. Like, I didn't know what to say, so I just went on as normal. Just like, okay, well, here you go. I didn't, like, try and offer him to sign up for a loyalty card or anything. I was just like, okay, have a good day. Bye. That was, like, the beginning. After that... I started noticing a lot more things happening all the time. <laughs> I had to go for some meetings up London. It's like 20 minutes on the train. My train back was stopped because of a suicide. The next day, I had to get the train up there again. Stopped because of a suicide. Day off work, I go for a run. I'm running through the park, and the police stop me and just like, oh, you need to leave the park. And I can see just ahead of me loads of police cornered off the section of the park turns out they found a body in the park <laughs> this is like round the corner from my house it's like six in the morning what is going on here i look out the window 
They found a naked man dead across the road from my flat. <laughs> they think fallen out of a window drunk. I see someone get, um, here, he went to cross and it just, I don't know if it killed him. But it hit him. This became a, a, an ongoing theme. The bar manager, Callum, he joined not long after the first incident at Bentles. So I'd go to the pub for a beer. Almost a cliche, so you just got the weight of the world on your shoulders. So I'm waiting to tell me about it. Barman routine. Um, that's how we just got chatting. Oh, what did you see today, Greg? Oh, guy got hit by a car. Oh, he's, he strikes again. Like, he kind of started calling him the Greg Reaper from it all. But I went along with it. Like, I kind of enjoyed the humour. I had the joke and stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, be careful. You stand next to me. Like, trying to f find humour in it all. You know, I wasn't seriously walking around thinking, right, death is following me. But I was definitely aware that I was seeing it a hell of a lot more. I remember saying to my friend Joe, I was like, I listed all the things that had kind of happened recently and text him. And I was like, do you not feel like something's going to happen? Like, this is building up to something? He was like, no. <laughs> I was like, okay, I have a feeling something big's going to happen soon. I was on a bus home one night from the pub and I had a few beers. My bus suddenly stopped. There'd been a, an accident outside. It was chaos. There was people crying, there was people screaming, there was people in shock, shrapnel all over the floor. There was no police there, there was no one there, and it was just no one was really taking control. I kind of looked round. I saw a smashed up bus. I saw a smashed up car. I just saw a body pinned from a car against a wall. Okay. That's real. I just walked away. I didn't stick around, I walked completely away. I just walked. I rang my wife and was like, you won't believe what I just saw. And she came and picked me up with her mum. The next day, I had a uh, yearly review at head office for work, which I was nervous about anyway. All over the streets, the news agents, the front page was this crash I saw. I could see this girl's face all day. And then I had to go into this, my yearly review, and talk figures and numbers, and I still felt numb all the way through that. Picked up a copy of this paper, because it was like a free one to hand down the street. That's why I could see it everywhere. Young girl handing in, like, her uh, final coursework for university. Just crossing the road. This car lost control, hit a bus, pinned her against the wall. Killed her instantly. That actually started making me think about the sound of this boy hitting the floor back at the centre like four months before. It kind of brought that back. And I was hearing that thumping sound again when I was sleeping at night. When I'd get stressed, tired, or run down with work, it would kind of start coming back. Played in my mind. 
I hear sounds quite a lot in the centre that are loud bangs. And you do see nowadays people react and look and look over the edge to see if it's someone that's jumped. But I'm just like, that's not the sound it makes. That sound sticks with you, man. It's just a solid bump. You know what? I'm going to stop looking for it. And I'm not looking for it, but it's I'm going to stop reading and thinking like, oh, this is there, this is there. I'm going to stop joking about it with people now. Because... It's pretty real. The Greg Reaper. That was kind of wearing thin, that joke. I only told a couple of people I'd seen it. It's not the kind of thing you keep bringing up with people. Oh, guess what I saw the other day? Again, having again. You do play scenarios in your head. Like, you know, if I had been closer when it happened, what would I have done? Probably nothing. It still would have been too quick for me to react. I definitely didn't feel responsible for them. I feel like... Like I'm like attention-seeking. That's why I don't bring it up that much with people. The truth is I'm talking to you about it now, but I don't really talk about it much at all anymore. I don't even really talk too much about my wife. You know, at times when I've had trouble sleeping from it, she's like, maybe you should get help. Oh, I'm a victim. I'm struggling to sleep. I'm that. When when so many more people around suffered more. His friends at school, or the girl at uni, her friends and family. You know, the next day they put a big, like, tribute shrine up to her where it happened, and there's still flowers there now. I couldn't walk past it for a while. This stuff happens all the time. It wasn't following me around. It was just always there. That story again was shared by Greg Armstrong. Greg still hosts his own podcast, The All-Seeing Guys with Greg and Joe. Very different, much more lighthearted show than this story, but very, very funny. Now, if I'm ever in the UK, Greg, this is what's going to happen, because I've never been able to do this to anybody, okay? I'm not even going to tell you. I'm just going to find you at the Fighting Cocks. I'm going to buy you a pint, and I'm going to sit at your table and wait, I hope, (laughs) that you recognize me. Keep an eye out, my friend. I know where you drink. Next up is Jennifer Purdy in the sort of episode we don't get all the time, uh, an adventure piece, but I love editing and putting those kinds of stories together. Jennifer runs marathons all over the world, but this particular run is one that less than a few of you are likely to attempt. But if you are, hey, email me. We'll compare notes. This is Jennifer Purdy in episode 27's Cool Running. Jennifer scans the ship's interior, sizing up the other passengers. They're looking a little fierce. If you look at them, I mean, I just, I thought, what am I doing here? She and a hundred other runners, some of the best in the world, are heading south. Real south. Because what better place to run a marathon than Antarctica? People who trained like Olympians, and I don't. I just went into it hoping to finish. Make no mistake, Jennifer is a trained triathlon and marathon runner. But she's in it for the experience, not the competition. When she first started, she couldn't even swim. I started showing up in a class with a bunch of five-year-olds. I didn't have on my little floaties like a bunch of the little kids did, but they swam circles around me within a few lessons and I couldn't even stick my face in the water. It took me two years to be able to learn to swim. 
ship lurches violently. She was warned about this. The boats were Russian boats and they were a lot smaller, so you hit the waters a lot harder. Enough of a thrill ride for just about anybody. But the four-day journey from South America means navigating some of the roughest waters in the world. The Drake Passage. We hit the Drake Passage around four in the morning, and we know we hit the Drake Passage because things were starting to fly across the room. Waves of up to 30 feet smash the ship from all sides. In order to keep them from flying out of bed, passengers cinch themselves down with seatbelts. Not that they can sleep. They lined the hallways with hundreds of barf bags, and by the end of the day, there would only be a few left. Not only are you dehydrated, but you're also lacking in calories, which is not really how you want to go into a race. So even starting the race, I think we came from a severe disadvantage. The land just felt so different than anywhere I've ever been, just really felt like stepping on completely foreign land, and I don't mean like going to Europe. A bunch of people were just kind of walking around, not really knowing what to do, and someone said, this must be what it feels like to walk on the moon. This is an important race for Jennifer. More than bragging rights, more than the three-year waiting list or the six grand price of admission, if she finishes this run, she'll have officially completed a marathon across all seven continents. The runners will have three hours to reach the midway point, four more to finish the marathon. No second chances, no refunds. And the run includes a particularly harrowing three-mile scramble up and then down a glacier. They did tell us it was extremely dangerous, but it wasn't until we actually got on the course that you really get to see what it's like. The runners line up and await their signal. Ready, set, and we're on the clock. Jennifer adjusts the straps on her pack, trying to get comfortable with the added weight. For the first time ever in my life, we had absolutely no aid stations. We had to carry everything on our own. It was kind of interesting because when I, I lived in cold weather and I would have a really hard time running in the winter because of the burning of the lungs. That only lasted for a short period of time. It was a little bit warmer than normal, which actually wasn't a good thing. It sounds like it would be, but it wasn't because it was actually making the ice melt. It creates quite a bit of mud, which makes it slippery, and then it makes the water run on the glacier. The first five miles were pretty flat and we were running over mud. There really is no path. It's not like you're running down a street and you just know you're running on the street. We had to look for those little orange flags to tell us where to go. Otherwise, we could end up getting lost. And you really don't want to get lost in Antarctica. Gradually, Jennifer watches the other athletes pass her by. First the men, then the women. The first three-hour cutoff should be no problem, but she checks her stopwatch anyway. Unfortunately, without the guidance of the other runners in front of her, Jennifer strays from the path. Suddenly, she trips. When she tries to stand, she's sinking. Down to my chest, caught in mud, and I can't get out at all. The mud might as well be quicksand. She only sinks further. I was down into my chest in mud, but my arms were free, so that's really all I had to work with. I've never been in something I literally couldn't get out of. Five minutes go by, then 10. 
Not a soul has run past her. I had watched on the Discovery Channel in the U.S., Man vs. Wild, and I've watched him try and get himself out of quicksand, and he takes a stick to try and hoist himself out. So I looked around for a stick and I couldn't find one. I had my water bottle in my hand because we had to carry all our own gear. This is the closest thing I have. Jennifer hacks at the walls of the pit until she finds a rock steady enough to hold her weight. When she thinks she's found one, she wedges the water bottle in place, pulls, and finally breaks free. Now I have an extra 10 pounds of mud kind of caking and sticking to me. Not only that, but I'm wearing extra clothes because of the cold. So I'm doing this marathon wearing a significant amount of weight than I'm used to. She takes a swig of her water bottle, but the seal didn't quite hold. Until the midway point, I'm having to drink mud. Jennifer is well behind. In a typical race, I can average nine minute miles. Here, she's only managing 15, so if she can keep pace, she'll just manage the three-hour cutoff. Up ahead, the glacier looms. Quite a few runners, especially the men, were already running down the glacier, so I knew I was quite a bit behind at that point. The men were hardcore, didn't really care about safety, just wanted to take the glacier as hard as they could. You know what they say, the bigger they are, well, the bigger the break. He ended up breaking his hip and almost was medevaced out of Antarctica because it was so bad. It was slipping almost the entire way up because it was warmer, so the ice was melting, so it kind of felt like an ice rink. But not only are you walking on an ice rink, you're walking at it at an angle. The going up is slow, but at least Jennifer isn't alone anymore. Just as she finds herself slipping, another runner catches her. She grabs my hand and kind of pulled me up, and we went up this glacier together. Thanks, says Jennifer. She gets a closer look at the woman. You, uh, you look really familiar. I'm sorry. Were you on TV? The Real World? Um, MTV show? The woman gives her a wink. Watch this part, okay? <laughs> it's a little slippery. Near the top, it started to get into blizzard conditions. Snowing really bad and we couldn't really see very well. As the weather picks up, the going gets tougher. One of the race organizers zooms by in an ATV. Spun it around and turned on the headlights and told everybody just run toward the light. Kind of ironic because that's what they tell you to do when you die. At the turnaround point, I actually took a little break because it just took everything out of you just to get up it. I ended up with three other runners and we all kind of linked arms and just took little baby steps down together because going up was actually easier. I thought it was extremely difficult to go up, but now you're declining and it's very easy to slip and fall. Another runner up ahead slips, breaks her wrist. Jennifer needs to take it slow. She's also running out of time. She has half an hour to make it to the midway point, or she's disqualified. Less than 15 minutes before disqualification, Jennifer hits the halfway mark. She takes a few moments to dump her gear, clear the mud from her water. Another injured competitor, this 
one on crutches limps by. I think that's what made people drop out. They just said, forget it, I don't want to do this anymore. I thought about that race for three years and I trained for it. I did nine miles a day where I would run three miles and then climb three miles and then run three miles, that's how I trained. But to do all that and to go there and not finish, that's just devastating. Four hours to finish. She'd better get moving. Up ahead is the first of several research stations, each of which operates on its own country's time zone. The time would change from one research facility to another. It'd be eight in the morning, and then we'd run five miles, and it'd be 10 in the morning. The Russians sip hot soup for breakfast, watching amused as the runners go by. A couple of them flap their arms, pointing to the skies ahead. And there they are. Like a, like a cross between a seal and an ostrich. They're actually quite big. I've never seen anything that looks like it. At four feet of wingspan, very aggressive, it's a large flock of Antarctic skuas. The birds dive for the highest part of your body, so competitors are warned to run with their arms above their heads. Because if they were to land on us, they would land on our arms, and then we could beat them off with our water bottles. Imagine a hundred runners sprinting in unison with their arms straight up in the air. They look like a group of aliens figuring out how to be human. The lady right in front of me, in fact, if I had actually been maybe 40 seconds faster. I knew I was quite a bit behind. I actually didn't know if I was even going to make a seven-hour cutoff time. A little over an hour remained but it's the skies that continue to prove daunting. And it rained, but it rained sideways. I grew up in Seattle where I was used to rain, but I'd never seen rain like this. It makes it difficult to see where Jennifer's going. Either she copes with blurry sunglasses or gets pelted in the eyes. I don't know how it rained sideways, because usually, you know, when it's windy, you're kind of, you can see in your car, the rain just kind of coming off to the sides. But if you've ever watched Star Wars, and in the Millennium Falcon, when they would go into that hyperdrive or something, I forget what it's called, but then all the stars would change. That's what it looked like. It kind of felt like being in a video game. Level one is climbing a glacier. Level two is climbing over boulders. And then you get to level three and you're dealing with sideways rain. We'd be in blizzard conditions in a glacier, and then we're running past this Chinese research station, and it's raining, and it's really not that cold. But then you'd run five miles out, and it would be snowing. As soon as you'd turn and go a different direction, it was completely different. Half an hour before disqualification, Jennifer crosses the finish line. Her shoes are soaked, feet are blue, and she's absolutely starving but she's done it. Successful marathon across all seven continents. Even in my toughest days, I would never spend seven hours on a marathon course, but there was actually a lot of people that took almost that long. An older lady, probably in her 60s or 70s, she made the half, but she got disqualified for the full, and she was so upset. I mean, you come all this way and you spend all this money and then to not make it. 
I like adventure and I like to travel and I like hard races. I like to have a challenge. But I'm still, I don't consider myself a runner per se. I'm more of a hobbyist. I'm trying to become the youngest woman to have done all of the seven continents twice. So I will actually have to go back and do another Antarctica race. So I'm on a list again. <laughs> I'm not particularly looking forward to that. That story again was shared by Jennifer Purdy. Since recording that story, Jennifer's been running all over the dang place, still trying to hit her world record, but she is well on her way. She was one of the first Americans to legally race across Cuba as of last year, and she has finished a full marathon somewhere in the Arctic Circle. Three more continents to go, that's it, and she'll have officially crossed all seven continents twice. Our last story comes from Felicia Martin, and it's the first thus far only example of a story we've had where we just don't know which part is true. I pored over these case files for weeks, trying to make sense of it, and while neither I nor Felicia have the answer as to what happened to her mother, the journey through those stories is a pretty compelling one. Here's Felicia Martin from episode 31's Where's Violet? I've imagined my mother running away and leaving us. I've imagined my mother getting brutally murdered by a man she thought loved her. I've imagined my mother jumping off of Niagara Falls and her body ripping into a million pieces. I've imagined my mother in every possible situation. None of them could hurt as much as one of them. I was about six grabbing my two-year-old sister out of her crib, walking down a flight of stairs to the sound of my mom screaming in the living room, just so carefully counting the stairs because I didn't want to drop my sister, peeking around the corner and her boyfriend was like physically abusing her in the living room, punching her. She brought us back to bed, kissed us and said goodnight. And that was actually one of my last memories. On November 9th, 1993, so that's about 22 years ago, my mom dropped us off at our babysitter's house. She got out of the car. She walked us up to the door. It was November, so we were wearing coats. Took our jackets off, hugged me, squeezed me. Her car was found on Clifton Hill in Niagara Falls. That was the last time we saw our mom. For 22 years, Felicia's been trying to solve a riddle. Where is Violet? What sparked her disappearance? And why, despite the indefinite suspension of her mother's case, is everyone dead certain they have the answer? Scenario one. I've imagined my mother with heroin needles in her arms. We assumed she committed suicide. I'm sorry. So I don't know if you've ever heard of Paul Bernardo or Carla Hamoka. Bernardo's defense lawyer, John Rosen, 
that Tammy was sexually assaulted Serial by his killers, client right? five months earlier in July night. They were raping and murdering women in my community. Our police department, along with the OPP, were completely wrapped up in what was happening with that investigation. On the same day, there was a sighting of a woman who jumped into Niagara Falls. It was like, case closed. Like, that's so easy. Hearing things like she was in bad relationships, she was a young mother, she wasn't sure if she was a great mother. We're talking about a 24-year-old who had me at 18 and my sister at 22. Like, of course she was unsure. That doesn't seem like a good enough explanation to me. Scenario two, the babysitter's story, as remembered by Felicia. They never talked to my babysitters. They were never questioned. Dropped us off, hugged me, squeezed me, laid my two-year-old sister down on the floor, kissed her from head to toe, like kissed every inch of her, and then begged my babysitters, no matter what, to always take care of us. She knew she wasn't coming home that day. Violet was a bit of a partier, a frequent clubber, not always known for her choice in men. This new fellow she's seeing, well, you remember what he's like. Abusing her, punching her. Her boyfriend had threatened her, threatened her life or threatened us, so my mom left with him. He was from the US, so walking distance from where her car was found in Niagara Falls. So it would have been normal for her to go to the US, normal for her to meet up with her boyfriend in the falls and then have him drive her over. My mom had been like talking to them earlier in the week about her boyfriend putting in a pool. It was kind of gruesome the way they described what they thought. Your mom's body will be found at the bottom of his in-ground swimming pool. Scenario three, the auntie's premonition, as remembered by Felicia. She describes my mom leaving, doesn't describe my mom dropping us off at the babysitters at all, just my mom left. My mom wasn't due to be home until about 4.30 the afternoon of November 9th, and at 12.30, my uncle was freaking out about how Violet had disappeared. My Aunt Grace had a dream that my mom's spirit came to her and said, take care of my children, like, I need you. That same week, When you talk about her, when you talk about what happened, where she could be now, it's always turn back to God and heaven and leave it up to God because, you know, he'll give you the closure you need. I'm not religious in the way that they are, and that's not an answer for me. So if she didn't jump from Niagara Falls, if she wasn't murdered by her boyfriend, and if she's not been paying spiritual visits, where is Violet Zarb? Scenario four, the cameo, as remembered by Felicia. It's the late 90s, several years after Violet's disappearance. Felicia's cousin Tina works the exchange booth at a Niagara casino. It's mostly business as usual, exchanging receipts for the customers as they cash their winnings. But this next customer, this woman with striking brown eyes, long brown hair. Violet? The woman taps her ID. No, I think you're mistaken. Different name. Now it's Tina shaking her head. No, I think you're Violet Zarb. And the woman grabbed her ID and ran away. 
asked Tina what name was she using. Was it an Ontario ID? And she said, I don't know. Like, I just looked at her eyes and I knew it was her. It wasn't just the way she looked. It was like the way she moved. You know how people have those, like, characteristics about them? Like, things you just can't change. The way my mom walked was like a signature. The way she gestured, her hair, her eyes. And if you ask her, like, out of 100, how sure are you that it was my mom? She'll tell you, like, 99.5%. 99.5%. Not a lot of margin for error there. Scenario 5. Still, the appearances, the theories, they keep coming. Scenario 6. They haven't stopped coming. Scenario 7. And if you ask a lot of them, out of 100, how sure are you? How positive? Scenario 8. There's not a lot of margin for error there, either. Keep this on the down low, says her uncle. Through particular members of this well-known biker gang, your mom disappeared with them. Last I heard, she was cruising around Manitoba. Last he heard? All of these people have the craziest theories. Scenario 9. Felicia's theory. As constructed from the memories of friends and family. She left. My mom left her sort of shitty life to do better. She wanted better for us than she was able to provide at 24, and she wanted better for herself. And as much as that makes me angry, like, I don't really hold it against her because I get it. If she's somewhere else living her own life, I don't even know that I'd need to have a conversation with her. I just need to know. Something. It's been a few months since Felicia first shared this story with me, and now, actually... She does know something, a lot of somethings, because she's been granted access to her mother's case file. Police to inform them of the possibility that Miss Violet Zarb may have been in the area and something take her own life. The clothing description of the jumper was a black leather jacket and jeans. The age and a detailed description of the jumper was apparently unknown. According to the report, Violet's neighbors are the last to see her alive. No earlier than 8.35 a.m. because the school bus has already been by. Violet puts out one garbage bag on the curb and two full bags of clothes in her shed. She dons her black leather jacket and drives away. She is alone. By 9.05, about the time it'd take to drive and park, she leaves her vehicle at a meter in front of the Tableside restaurant. At normal walking speed, the report estimates she hikes the falls in about 25 minutes. At 9.10 a.m., a Japanese tourist calls 911. They claim they saw a jumper and a black leather jacket, kind Violet wears everywhere, plunge off the falls. parking ticket is left on Violet's windshield at 10 a.m. It all adds up to a pretty sad story. Violet seemed depressed, said her family. She bookmarked the self-help book to a page on suicide, and she even went so far as to claim she envied the recent death of a woman from Ajax who killed herself by jumping off a bridge into the river below. On paper, 
it really looks like Violet committed suicide. Except... Just hold on a minute. By the report's own math, it's a 25-minute walk from her parking spot. Violet would have arrived at the falls no earlier than 9.30 a.m. Remember, the call to the police was at 9.10 a.m. from a Japanese tourist. In fact, the black leather jacket, the one that the Japanese tourist saw on the jumper, she wasn't wearing it. It was found in Violet's car. My favorite line was, we called all her friends. Not names, not who her friends were, just we called all her friends. As a story of suicide, Felicia does not buy this report, which is understandable. The simple answer isn't always the easy one. But these are the facts, aren't they? They're supposed to be. If we're to at least attempt the credibility, an official record is the first place we should be citing. Otherwise, it's just hearsay. Yet, there are inconsistencies here. If we can't trust the facts, just whose narrative are we listening to? Scenario 10. My theory. As constructed from the memories of Felicia, her friends, her family, and the report, which I have now read. Let the obvious be known. I am not a police officer. I do not have training as a private investigator. But if you really got to know me, you'd learn I am a skeptic to the core. I do not believe in ghosts or Bigfoot or chemtrails or whatever it is my horoscope said this morning. But I have to admit, even if it sounds too Hollywood to be true, maybe, just maybe, Violet faked her death. Bear with me. Violet's neighbors place her leaving her home no earlier than 8.35 a.m. by herself. Which is what's strange because she would have had to get in the car, take us to her babysitter's house, come back, and then leaving by 8.35. Not that that isn't plausible. Maybe she had last-minute business, privacy concerns, things she didn't want her family to find. Things her family didn't want Felicia to find. Are you telling me my mom was a prostitute and a drug dealer? Felicia's father seems to lean back in his chair for a moment. She can practically hear him shrug. Yeah, she used to trade for drugs. I went 22 years without talking to him about this because he was, like, really angry, and he hated my mom's family so much that when I brought it up, like, a vein in his forehead would bulge, and I didn't really understand why he hated them the way he did. I lived with a heroin dealer. <laughs> that was a bit alarming. My mom was dealing drugs, and I'm not sure for who. She was a prostitute. Not, like, actively on corners, but, like, very strategically fucking the right men to make a lot of money. I confronted the aunt that I mentioned before. I said, like, I know my mom was a hooker, and I know she was dealing drugs. You trying to protect me from all of this isn't helping. My aunt said that the day my mom disappeared, her entire house was ransacked. And then my aunt, Rita Ziarita, my great aunt, and my nana cleaned the house before investigators went in. <laughs> and my family knew that the crime scene was disturbed, but like there's nothing about that in the police report. 
Violet Zarb is the youngest of 10 siblings, at least one of which is a known heroin dealer. She's known as a bit of a survivor. She has an unplanned pregnancy at 18, and by 24, finds herself balancing two kids, a college semester, and a career in drugs and prostitution. It's easy to understand why Violet might be depressed, why she might kill herself. But this is another scenario. That's not the story we're telling. Instead, Violet plans a fresh start. Maybe she's in over her head, or maybe she just wants a different life, but she begins by seeding concern. She tells her family that she wishes that she was the gal who jumped from that bridge. She buys a self-help book, bookmarks a page on suicide, and tosses it into the backseat of her car. Now she needs an alibi who won't answer too many questions. She makes a deal with a Japanese tourist, maybe a client, to call in a jumper in a black leather jacket at approximately 9 a.m. That morning of, she drops the kids off with the babysitter and heads back home to eliminate any paraphernalia. Her family, least of which her children, need not remember her this way. She turns over cushions, tears up old hiding spots, takes what she needs, and throws out what she doesn't. She leaves no earlier than 8.35 a.m. At approximately 9.05, Violet parks her car in Niagara Falls. Not the trail, remember, but 1.8 kilometers away. Too far to walk to the falls in time, but a high traffic, high tourist area, including the U.S. border. She leaves no suicide note. She knows her insurance company would use it as ammo against her family, refuse to settle her claim. If she goes missing, they'll simply pay out after seven years. At 9.10 a.m., 911 receives a single call from a Japanese tourist witnessing a jumper in a black leather jacket. And then the jacket was found in the car. The file reports that Interpol will attempt to locate the Japanese tourist for a follow-up statement. No follow-up statement is made. Along with her jacket and her book, Violet also leaves her purse and driver's license in the car. What she does not leave is her birth certificate, SIN card, and her sister Kelly's ID. From a young kid, she had her ID to get into bars, and then she just never gave it back. That was always in the same part of her wallet, but that wasn't in the report of what the contents in her purse were. Three separate friends and family, says Felicia, all remember Kelly's ID and Violet's purse. A long-running joke of sorts, kind of a point of pride for her. Kelly Johnston, born in, I think, 1965. And Kelly Johnston, like, what a perfect name. Of course, that's just one scenario. One narrative of many. Maybe sometimes the pieces fit best because we want them to. Further to original incident. On Monday, December 8th, 2008, this file was reviewed. It was determined that all leads have been exhausted. The file is not actively being investigated at this time. This file is being transferred to the Major Crime Unit on Tuesday, December 9th, 2008. It will be added to the historical missing persons list. This file will be suspended indefinitely, pending additional information. I think that if she left, it was because of kind of the trouble that she got herself into. From all of the stories and all of the sort of dialogue that I've heard, like who she was... It just sounds like she would have done anything to keep going, you know? Her life sucked. Like, as I'm sitting here thinking about all of this, like, 
She was in a pretty bad place. And I get why someone in that position would want to kill themselves. If you interviewed me a year ago, I would have told you a completely different story. That is a constantly changing narrative based on the information I have, my own kind of mood and emotional state. I'm like a little sad for her that these were her experiences, that this was her life. And to be honest, I feel a little lucky that I didn't grow up in that house. Like, I feel really lucky that I didn't grow up in that house. I can't imagine who I would be today if my mom was alive all of those years. A sex worker who dealt drugs out of our house, like, like, I don't know. Sorry, even in this, I'm like swaying in what I think. That story again was shared by Felicia Martin. Felicia has not given up the search for her mother, and frankly, well, when you ask a lot of questions, sometimes you get more questions. But on a positive note, I'm gonna read you a message Felicia found lurking in her spam folder on Facebook. Turned out it wasn't spam. Hi, Felicia. I knew your mom in high school, and I can't tell you anything about your mom as the woman who was your mother. I only went to school with her one year before I switched cities. But at 14 years old, she was the kindest girl I knew. I was an east side kid and she was west side doing okay. In grade nine, she became my first and best friend. I was not well liked or popular, but she was good to me. That summer after school, she ended up inviting me to a birthday party in her mom's house in the yard. Being an east sider, I didn't have much money to get her something as nice as I would have liked, but for the 10 bucks I had to my name, I bought her a pair of seashell earrings. On the way to her house, I met her coming up the street and I asked her where she was going. She told me she was coming to meet me and walk me to her place. I decided to give her the unwrapped earrings as we walked so I wouldn't be embarrassed when she opened the cheap gift, but as I gave them to her, I noticed she already had earrings. Real gold ones and real gold to everything else. I was so embarrassed by the cheap ones I gave her, I was blushing. and She gave me a huge hug and told me how much she loved them. She stopped right in the street, took out her gold ones, and put the seashell ones in her ears. She wore them the whole party and showed them off like they were darn rubies or something, praising them up. She was kind soft-hearted, and had an emotional intelligence far beyond her age. Anyway, that's all I can really tell you. She was a good woman. I never knew a kinder person when I was a kid. And uh, that's the end of the letter. If you have any more information regarding Violet Tsar, be it past or present, Felicia asks that you visit www.missingviolet.com. I want to say a massive thank you to the Lapses executive-level patrons, courtesy of Patreon, Haley Smith, Jill Galvez, Dan Lesser, Richard Quartz, Cindy Crines, Don Smith, Patrick Freeburn, Matthew Gibson, Rob Holcomb, and Jennifer Cherney. I'll say it again, without Patreon, this show would be over, kaput. So, thank you to everybody who continues to support this show. If it strikes a chord with you, I sure would appreciate the tip. That's uh, at patreon.com slash the laps. If you have a story to share, and you do, you absolutely do, I promise. Get in touch with me. I want to hear it. I'm at storiesatthelapse.org. You can also find me whether or not you have a story. If you want to follow me direct, I'm at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at The Lapse Podcast. My name is Kyle Jest, and this was The Lapse. Thank you so much for listening.